Hello, everyone, and welcome to Diversity Matters, where we explore all things diversity, equity, and inclusion related. I'm your host, Oscar Holmes IV, and I'm so excited to welcome an amazing scholar, Dr. Miles Durkee, to the guest chair today as we talk about the acting white phenomenon. Miles earned a BA in psychology from Pomona College and his PhD in educational psychology from the University of Virginia. He has won numerous awards and grants for his research and is currently an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Michigan. Dr. Durkee, welcome to Diversity Matters. Thank you for having me. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. Philadelphia Ballet is a proud sponsor of Diversity Matters. Philadelphia Ballet is deeply committed to cultivating an inclusive organization where all communities feel a sense of belonging. Through community education and public programs, Philadelphia Ballet seeks to bring more access to dance and education by offering free programming for students of all ages in schools and organizations across the city. Learn about Philadelphia Ballet's commitment to diversity and inclusion on stage and off by visiting philadelphiaballet.org. So we're going there today. Some people will even call it a taboo topic. My Diversity Matters listeners know that last year, today's guest got a shout out on my code switching episode with Dr. Courtney McClooney, who is a mutual dear friend of ours. So up until now, I've had some sort of prior connection with all of my guests. So kudos to you, Miles, for being my first guest, whose great work got them a shout out on a prior episode who I didn't necessarily know about before. So I had to go and read it and was like, yes, this work is awesome. And this was already a topic that I was thinking about that I wanted to explore in here. So I knew I had to reach out to this brother and see if you would agree to have this conversation with me. And I'm so glad that you agreed. So Miles. Let's get started. Pleasure to be here. Dr. Clooney is a great colleague of mine. So so happy to hear that she gave me that uh, shout out. It means a lot to me. Yeah, go back to the episode. It was a great episode. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing a lot of the work that you two are doing on Code Switching as well. Come out soon. So, you know, we're going to talk about the acting white phenomenon today. And for those listeners who may not be familiar with the term, can you explain not only what acting white means, but a little bit of the origins of that phrase as well? No, absolutely. So there's no one way to define acting white because this acting white term means different things to different people. So and in reality, we know that there's not just one way to act like any racial group, whether that's black, white, Hispanic, Asian, etc. So the easiest way to define acting white is kind of like the broadest definition. So essentially, people of color can be accused of acting white when they demonstrate non-stereotypical behavior. So essentially behaving in a way that doesn't fit with the societal stereotypes associated with their racial group then they can be vulnerable to being accused of acting white from their peers, from family members, from strangers, sometimes even from teachers. But in terms of what that label actually means, that's where we see a good amount of difference across individuals. So in terms of the research literature, so the acting white term was first coined in the research literature in 1986 by and Fordham and Agbu as well. And they define acting white as they notice it amongst Black middle school students in a, a middle school in Washington, D.C. So this is predominantly Black middle school. And you notice that the peers were accusing each other of acting white for getting good grades, being basically a nerd, performing well in school, spending a lot of time in the library, etc. So based on that scenario where they observed the acting white accusation, they associated with a primarily academic achievement type of association where for Black youth, 
performing well in school, that's perceived as not authentically black and thus may leave them vulnerable to be accused of acting white. Since then, that now that we call it the myth of acting white has been challenged a lot in the research literature because this term embraces so much more than just academic achievement. It's essentially a term based around stereotypes associated with pretty much all racial groups of all people of color because they each have their own unique stereotypes. But when any people of color deviate from those stereotypes, they can still be vulnerable to be accused of acting white. Thank you for that explanation. And I'm glad that you elaborated a little bit more because we know now it has extended right beyond just this academic piece, right? It's, it's about clothing, sometimes mannerisms, people have the likes, as well as how people just respond to each other, right? So sometimes some people have this sense of superiority or this exclusion, right? And sometimes this term is levied against them. The origin of the term you mentioned earlier about being in Washington, D.C., which was a predominantly Black school, what do you make of, you know, newer research that's come out that have basically found that this acting white label is often levied against minority students in racially integrated schools, you know, public schools specifically, much more than actually more homogenous public schools so basically, students who are in majority Black schools won't necessarily get this label attached to them as often as if, as if they were in integrated schools. What do you make of that? So that's a great trend that we're seeing. So context matters a lot. And within that context, it's both, I would say, the cultural climate within that school setting, but also the racial composition has a large influence. So when you think about that racial composition, when you're in a school where you are the majority group, even if you are a person of color, but you're in a school that's, you know, predominantly your same race, because you're in the majority group, you're much more likely to be perceived and judged as an individual. So let's say if you're behaving in a way that goes against kind of the cultural norms or the cultural tendencies, then your peers of likely the same racial group, they're going to judge you now as an individual and less so as an ambassador of the racial group. Now, if we flip those dynamics and now you're a person of color in a predominantly white school where now there's few people from your same racial group, now in more of those spaces in your classrooms, across campus, even if you don't volunteer for it, you're automatically going to be seen as an ambassador of your entire racial group, where now you're carrying the reputation of the entire racial group because everything you do, your peers from the majority group, they're going to be evaluating that and sizing that as, oh, that's what all Black people do, or that's what all Latinx people do, all Asian people, et cetera. So because of that, when these groups are in the severe minority, the stakes are higher to now represent the group in a positive light. And almost to any of you come from a marginalized group, now it's to protect the reputation of the group to try to not confirm some of these negative stereotypes. So that's where we see these checks and balances and this acting white accusation comes up a lot more frequently in these contexts that are either racially diverse where there is no single majority group or in contexts where you're severely underrepresented because now you're carrying that extra weight of having to represent your entire racial group and to represent them in a positive light. So if you over-assimilate too much to, let's say, white society or to the majority group, then you're going to be seen more as a sellout. So then that group is still going to kind of try to create some checks and balances to pull you back in line with the way that they see you should be behaving. And on the flip side, too, if you behave in a way that's just overly too stereotypical from your group, particularly if you're fitting some of these negative stereotypes, then you're also going to make the group look bad. And there's going to be some checks and balances there to try to, you know, get those individuals in line to not tarnish the reputation of the whole group. Right. Context matters, as you said before, because I was really intrigued to, to learn through this research that even this private public label makes a difference, right? So the composition matters in places, but even Black students who are in, well, majority white schools, if it's a private school, 
they also experience this acting white phenomenon less often than those students in public schools. And so not only is the demographic compensation that matters, but also, you know, whether it's a private school or a public school that they're going to. So that was just really interesting to me as I was diving into this research. And again, I don't know if you want to elaborate any more on what you think the dynamic between a private school versus public school and those compensation. Yeah. So one thing that discrepancy we'll see between private and public schools is across the board, private schools oftentimes have less economic diversity as public schools will have. So because of that, especially if these schools are very elitist, selective, expensive private schools, you're going to have a much higher composition of affluent students going there. So there's just less diversity there, which is going to influence the accusation of acting white. Um, and at the same time, too, private schools tend to have less racial diversity as public schools do. So once again, like because of those two factors, that's why we're going to start to see these discrepancies between those two contexts. But I would say it's more so of those factors rather than just the sake that it's just a private school alone versus a public school. It's really the kind of weeding factors that they have and which populations they're pulling from. That makes sense. Perfect sense. So, so tell our listeners, like, how did you get interested in studying this? Yeah. So I never thought that I would be spending my career <laughs> studying cultural invalidations like the acting white accusation. So it actually came up during my first year in grad school. When I entered my PhD program, I was really interested in understanding the types of racial stressors that Black students experience in college. So I expected to go into this looking at more of your traditional types of discrimination of being, you know, called a racial slur or being excluded on campus or, you know, stopped by security or the police. But as we sat down in my first year as a young, you know, doctoral student, and we started to talk to Black college students at several different institutions, we found out that every time we talked to these students in focus groups, the conversation switched to also within group discrimination. And the way that they came out of, in terms of within race discrimination, it was always the acting white accusation, where Black college students felt like not only do they experience discrimination from kind of white teachers, staff, faculty, security at their schools, but they also just experience a sense of discrimination from their own community and folks who look like them because they're constantly being evaluated, sized up, and labeled as not good enough or not authentic enough to be considered fully Black or authentically Black. And this caused a lot of psychological stress and trauma for these college students. And it was unique types of racial stress that was so different from discrimination because a lot of them have been experiencing discrimination for their entire life. I mean, from as early as they can remember. So because they have such experience with discrimination, they've developed coping mechanisms to deal with that. But when it came to the discrimination from within their own race, some of our participants didn't even know if they could call it discrimination. I mean, they admitted that it hurt just as much, if not more, and it was racially driven, but they didn't know if they could call it racism or discrimination because it's from someone who's supposed to be part of their support network or even someone within their family. So that really piqued my interest in really trying to understand more about this acting white accusation because that's the way that the participants in our research described it. And that's the way that they most commonly experienced it. And I do want to say that this acting white label, there's so many other variants of it. So that's just kind of the broader, you know, term that we classify it. But these students were accused of being an Oreo, kind of Uncle Tom, sellout, kind of all these other variants that all fall within them being accused, perceived as not being authentically Black. So I want to elaborate on that a little bit more because, you know, again, within our community, most of us have all heard of it, right? Although people don't necessarily know the nitty gritty of it. Do you remember, and it's okay if you don't, but do you remember some of the profiles of some of the students who have shared these experiences? Because I would imagine that there are also similar profiles of students 
uh, or just people in general, right, who have not had that levied against them as well. I'm basically trying to get at if you have deduced in your research, right, a certain type of profile or a certain type of actions that are more likely for people to have this label levied against them versus other people within groups. And based on how you answer, I may come back with another question. <laughs> not a great question. Yeah. So there's definitely not one type of profile because this, this label, it's so common for youth of color. And at this point, I want to say youth of color because this is not unique to Black folks. The research literature has focused much heavily on Black folks with this dynamic, but it happens for most groups of color. But for kind of teenagers, uh, so when we measure data, most of our data now has been with Black and Latinx, late adolescents, you know, young adults. And we're seeing the vast majority of these young adults are experiencing this accusation at some point in their lifespan. Typically, this occurs during high school is when we see the frequencies hit their peak in terms of these accusations, but they often continue into college as well, too, and even to adulthood, sometimes past college. But in terms of the single trait in which people are most likely to be accused of acting white, it's hands down their style of speech. So above and beyond everything else, based on the way that you talk, you're going to, that's going to leave you the most vulnerable to being accused of acting white. For Black young adults, it's the way that they speak English, so whether they speak it with, let's say, like a Black accent, or like the academic literature says, uh, African-American vernacular English, versus kind of mainstream standard American English, which is going to perceive sound more of like a kind of a white accent. But for Latinx youth, in addition to the way that they're speaking English, it's also whether or not they're fluent in Spanish. For a Latinx individual, if they don't know how to speak Spanish and they share the information with another Latinx individual, oftentimes they felt a sense of disappointment or even surprise, or that they are now being judged as less Latino by that individual. So across that, we kind of see a gamut of different behaviors too. I mean, in terms of, like you said, the clothing you wear, the brands, even the way that you are wearing that clothing, even if it's a baseball cap, the way that you're rocking that cap, your handshakes, the way you walk. I mean, there's just so many attributes under, I mean, the sky's the limit. In terms of, and it's, I guess on that note, it's interesting how we've racialized almost every attribute of human behavior to fit within a certain kind of flavor or variant to fall within a certain racial group. And when individuals don't fit that very strategic, limited profile of what we expect each racial group to behave, that can leave them vulnerable to being accused of acting white. And so tell me if you have had this experience as well, because I've had this experience. I have obviously seen some cases, right? A few cases when I've heard the term levied against someone based off of clearly language, right? How they speak, but also this idea of academic achievement. But most often within communities, again, based on my experiences, when I've heard other people use it with other Black people, right? It was more so because of the people the way they were talking basically to other Black people, right? It was a condescension. It was like this idea that they did feel better than other people. And so that was always just my personal experience of how I've heard other people have, you know, used the term within community. So I'm just curious if you've shared some similar experiences, different experiences than mine. Yeah, I would say there's definitely an element. I mean, so basically when someone's being uppity, elitist, or bougie, (laughs) (laughs) just keep it real, then yeah, they're going to be likely to be accused of acting white for having that kind of condescending view, I guess. And even it's directed typically towards other members of their same racial group as if they're someone superior. But even in a classroom, so we can think about it in classroom settings and even in, you know, professional workplace settings, 
there's a certain expectation that no matter what cultural background you're from, you're going to sound the same way that the majority group sounds like in that workplace. So that's a situation where now it's literally code switching and it's changing your style of speech, not to be in a condescending way, but just to sound more white. Because having that white sounding voice, organizations may see that as an asset. Particularly if your, your job involves being on the phone, where customers may not see you face to face, but if you're the voice of the company, unfortunately, companies tend to preference a more white sounding voice than they do a more ethnic sounding voice. Absolutely. And I'm sure many of us have those experiences. We know our parents, right? My mother and father were like, oh, that's the white voice. <laughs> they turned on interacting with someone. And so, and again, that's a description, right? Like that's not even an insult. That's not a cultural validation if we are looking at it from that standpoint, right? We're like, okay, somebody's speaking to customer service. They turn on the white voice, right? That wasn't a cultural validation in that sense, right? That's like a descriptor of this. So I would frame the most code switching. I mean, that's clearly right, code switching, right? Code switching, right? Is switching into that different uh, kind of racial profile based on the context that they're in. But let's say a member of their, you know, close circle, a close friend, or a family member sees them doing this, and now accuses them of acting white, or now accuses them of being less authentic, not keeping it one hundred, or being a sellout, which we commonly see in the black community for individuals who also intentionally refuse to code switch, they're now much more likely to culturally invalidate other members of that community who do code switch because they're seeing them as being less authentic across spaces. Talking about how important it is in terms of code switching in this case, because you know the research suggests, particularly if you're dealing with police interactions, right, how acting white could be a survival tactic. Uh, so can you talk about uh, some of these like more high stakes situations that people of color may find themselves in. So I think what kind of makes the acting white accusation dangerous is that very common, typical, just American traits and tendencies that nearly everyone demonstrates in our society, because we've associated American with whiteness, and those two are so commonly overlapping with one another, that just common things that folks do in America, like eat fast food, go to get Starbucks, things like this, We've unfortunately associated that with acting white and even things that we would expect all you to engage in, such as getting good grades in school, showing up on time, being punctual, being polite. Unfortunately, we've also associated that as acting white as well, because that doesn't fit with the stereotypes that we associate with people of color, which are much more often negative in that case. So an individual who's not fitting all these negative stereotypes, who's a member of a marginalized racial group then it's unfortunate in society that, yes, they're going to be vulnerable of being accused of acting white quite often by not fitting all these negative stereotypes. And let's keep it real. I mean, not even white folks fit all the positive stereotypes associated with white people. But when they don't fit those positive stereotypes, they're less likely to be accused of being less white in that case. I would say probably the more common association that white individuals may want to distance themselves from is being accused of maybe being a redneck or being accused of being less uh, polished. So we do see a type of kind of competition between Southern whites versus Northern whites, where Southern whites realize, once again, to get ahead in their career, they might have to code switch and change the way they talk to sound less Southern because a Southern accent is going to have some stigma with it. So I would say that's kind of, I would say the most, probably the more dangerous part of this acting accusation is that when individuals, I guess, are so accustomed to it and it's so common in that space it may get easy to get lost in the weeds and fail to recognize that these are just normal behaviors that everyone does. And also less likely probably to push back against defying these stereotypes and expectations that people have of others. 
And so earlier you talked about the myth, how we talk about it now, the myth of this acting white phenomenon. So I just want to give you some more time to elaborate on that a bit more, particularly since when we look at high achieving black students, we find on average, they typically are more popular than their counterparts. And so, I mean, I just want to hear what you think should be our takeaway from those findings, but also explaining a little bit more why we call it a myth now. Yeah. So to really clarify on that myth of acting white, that myth was uh, referring directly to, at that point in time, and we're talking about the late 80s now, the, I guess, assumed thought in the science, er, the literature was that Black youth are deterred from achieving well in school for fear that their peers are going to accuse them of acting white. So this was proposed as a potentially potential explanation for the chronic achievement gap in the United States between standardized test scores of Black youth and white youth. And the argument here was that Black youth may simply not be trying as hard as they could to eliminate the achievement gap for the fear that if they did try to their full potential, they'd be accused of acting white. So the reason that's been labeled as a myth and it's been debunked a lot is because Black youth can still receive this acting white accusation and still go on to be valedictorian, that it doesn't deter all Black youth, all right? It's an insult. It's a stressor, just like all the other insults and stressors that teenagers are going to experience from their peers. And in addition to racism and structural and cultural racism they're going to encounter. So let's say, yeah, so that's that was the myth of debunking that, that it's not the ultimate tell-all deterrent to academic achievement. So policymakers, everyone, celebrities, make sure you understand this point. It is the myth. Okay, this is not the reason why Black people do not achieve or do not want to achieve. Please hear what Dr. Turkey is saying about this. So please stop saying this. You know, please stop being at bully pulpits <laughs> saying we need to stop saying if you act white because, you know, you think you want to act well in school, you know, or perform academically well. Please stop it. <laughs> Dr. Durkee has explained it to us well. I don't know how many times we have heard this explanation for why we see these achievement gaps. They're much more structural, not individual, the reasons why we see these gaps. All right. So I thank you for explaining that myth to us. All right. Now, the question that I asked before was in terms of popularity. So in terms of the research looking at popularity within African-American youth, right? And so there are some findings that African-American students who achieve well academically are a bit more popular than their counterparts, which again, basically contradicts the original idea of this acting white phenomenon. And so what should we make of those findings? Yeah. So within that literature, we have to almost look at it with a fine-tuned magnifying glass because it's not as clear as an effect as it may sound. So yes, when we look within schools overall, like if we were looking to a grand kind of trend, then yes, high, kids who tend to do better in schools are going to be slightly more popular. They're going to be more social and more engaged in the school in terms of they're more likely to engage in sports, they're more likely to be in student government. And all of these factors help them to become more engaged with both of their peers. So that's going to help with the achievement. But when we get to the ultimate cream of the crop high achievers, so kind of like your valedictorians, the top one, two percent of the class, regardless of race, those individuals are still likely to be accused of being nerds, being geeks, et cetera. So they're probably less likely to be the most popular kid in the campus. But as we get closer towards that trend, then yeah, there's going to be an overall average that suggests that achievement is going to be associated with popularity. One other caveat that we really need to recognize that kind of throws a lot of error variants into that trend is the byproduct of racial tracking. 
for many schools. And that's racial tracking is also what was driving some of those effects we found earlier in terms of these racial differences in popularity and achievement, because in a lot of schools still to this day in the United States, and unfortunately, I was I went to one of these schools, too, for most of my public school education, where although overall the school can be very racially diverse, when you look at the actual racial composition of the individual classrooms and which track they're on, these classrooms, even in a very diverse school, can be completely segregated. So for most of my public school education in racially tracked schools, I was in classrooms surrounded by predominantly all white peers. So in fact, to go on an anecdote, my first encounter with the acting white accusation was simply walking to class and based on the direction of the classes you were going to, because each track was in a different direction on the campus, you could determine who was on what track. So as I was walking towards the classroom right after lunch, one of my friends who's also black said, oh, you're walking to the white classes. And when he said that to me, we had to think about it. And he wasn't saying that simply because you're high achieving, it's white. He was literally describing literally, even at a very diverse school, those were the all white classes. So when you look at that, then that can be a, a consequence of why students of color who are, let's say, at the highest level of achieving, they also may not be the most popular because they're in classes where they're still severely underrepresented, even at a diverse school. And oftentimes, too, they're separated from their peers of their same race, who they may also likely hang out with, you know, during the breaks before and after school as well. So they're almost separated and divided from their community if they're fortunate enough to be placed on that track. But we disproportionately place white and Asian students a lot of times automatically on these higher achieving tracks. And so this was my understanding of the literature. So if it has changed, please correct me. But it seems that girls were more targeted, you know, with this active white label than boys, but it suggests that boys are affected by it a little bit more. So again, correct me if I'm wrong on that finding, but if not, what do you make of it? It's a very interesting anomaly we see. So in some of the research that we've published, we really dove into these gender dynamics to get at why are girls receiving this accusation more than males. We found out that particularly for style of speech amongst both Black and Latinx women there and girls, they're much more likely to receive the acting accusation based on that style of speech. In terms of the impacts that it has also, actually, before I jump into the psychological impacts of it, also, if we break down kind of the bigger picture of what this looks like in the real world when you're accused of acting white. So for women of color, if they're defying a racial stereotype, regardless of the attribute, then they're much more likely to be accused of acting white for defying that racial stereotype. But when we look at Black and Latinx adolescents and young men, when they defy a racial stereotype, the situation gets a lot more complicated because, yes, the default, what you would expect is, yes, they should be invalidated in that case based on their racial group and their racial identity. But when we look at things such as speaking proper, speaking in a way that's, you know, I guess, standard American English, based on the environment you're in, sometimes for Black and Latinx males, simply for speaking proper, in exchange of being accused for a racial identity and validation, they can also be accused of being less masculine. So particularly if the stereotypes associated with them that they're going to be hyper-masculine, aggressive, violent, et cetera, all these negative stereotypes associated with them, when you see a male of color who's speaking proper English, you're going to be like, huh, he's not as masculine as I was expecting to be. He's not fitting this hyper-masculine profile that society has attributed to them in that. So in addition, now to receiving this based on their gender masculinity, they can also receive it based on sexuality. So if they're not experiencing this, if they're not fitting this hyper-masculine profile, that's a myth, once again, they can also be accused of being soft, being a punk, or be accused of acting gay, all for just speaking proper English or, or sounding like a scholar in this case which may come across as more feminine than this compared to this hyper-masculine profile. 
So because of that, I think that's I think that's likely explaining why we're seeing this gender discrepancy in the pure frequency of the accusation is women of color, particularly black and Latino women, much more likely to receive that exact racial invalidation. But for men of color, the same exact behavior speaking properly, they can now be accused based off their race, their gender and their sexuality. And that can be used interchangeably. So we think that's why it's a lower frequency overall for that accusation. Now, in terms of the implications of this threat, and particularly the academic achievement implications, we find that in terms of coping with these threats, I'll just, I'll just be real. So women are more likely to cope in a very more pro-social way, where if you accuse them, especially if the accusation's related to academic achievement, then we're seeing that high-achieving girls of color are likely to use that as motivation to try to challenge that myth, to kind of prove their accusers wrong. Of You know what? I will break through that glass ceiling if, because I'm a valedictorian, you assume that I'm not fitting the stereotype of my group, I'm going to prove you wrong. But for men of color who, once you know, are facing these, a, different, a slightly different set of stereotypes of being hypervasculate, et cetera, when you're now accused of acting white, if you also challenge their manhood or masculinity within that same threat, then unfortunately, adolescents and you know young men are going to be more likely to now double down on the stereotype to try to prove to you that they're still masculine, they're still a man, and that's going to conflict with what the behaviors we would expect of a scholar or a high-achieving student or a studious student. You know, those two hypermasculinity and being a scholar, those two tend to contrast one another, unfortunately. Well, thank you for explaining that. And, and this was a perfect example, again, of why toxic masculinity is just so detrimental to all of us as a society, right? Because oftentimes, too, when men feel like their masculinity has been challenged, they often do something to try to regain that sense of hypermasculinity, which um, unfortunately sometimes involves, you know, some level of degrading others or in the worst cases, like engaging in some form of violence, right, to kind of regain that sense. And so when people ask, you know, why is this all important to all of us? These are the reasons why it's important to everyone and for all of us to work really hard to break down, you know, these various forms of oppression. And so, you know, within this research, are there any findings that surprise you at all? You know, anything that you found that you thought, ah, I wouldn't have thought of that, right? Yeah, so I'll say less surprising, but I think really interesting. I'll go into that. So we find that, as you would probably expect, the perpetrator who's accusing you of acting white matters a whole lot. So first, the racial background of that perpetrator has a major impact on how it's going to impact uh, your mental health over time. So as you'd expect, being accused of acting white by a same-race perpetrator, for both Latinx and Black folks, being accused by a within-race member has a much more detrimental effect on their mental health than if they're accused by, let's say, a white peer at a predominantly white school. It's still going to have an effect, but it's nowhere near as detrimental as when someone within your own racial group is now invalidating you. Because now that person within your racial group, like I kind of referenced earlier, one, you're more likely to be caught off guard because you may not have your guard up to be discriminated against by people who look like you, who you would expect to be your support system. And then secondly, too, someone within your own racial group is going to have a little bit more credibility to be able to determine and judge and decide what's allowed and what's appropriate behavior for the racial group versus what's not. And someone outside of that racial group is going to have a little less credibility to determine that and set those standards. So we're seeing that effect. And then to further complicate that too, an individual's own racial identity plays a different role in helping to buffer how people cope with these dynamics, once again, depending on that who that perpetrator is. 
So in a paper we published last year, cool finding, we found that when that perpetrator is someone within your racial group, your racial identity doesn't matter at all in terms of how bad it's going to affect your mental health. Overall, it's going to have a bad effect on your mental health when that perpetrator is your same race. However, as soon as that perpetrator now switches outside of your racial group, that's where racial identity can actually kick in and play this protective role and to help folks cope with these uh, invalidations that they perceive as racial stress. And having a very highly central racial identity is actually really protective and buffering against those mental health consequences, but only when that perpetrator is outside your racial group. And just other cool work that we're still kind of teasing through all these different effects of these accusations because they get really complex when you start to dissect it by who the perpetrator is, the racial identity of the individual, and the gamut of outcome. But we find that also when we look at patterns of people's own racial identity over time, we're seeing a lot of unique intersectionality where we're seeing different patterns for Black female college students compared to Black male college students, and also even Latinx female college students differ from Latinx male college students. So they're internalizing these messages in different ways. And I think the reason that we're finding both these race and gender effects kind of alludes to kind of the previous situations I was describing, where for a male of color, the same exact threat can now turn into a triple threat, where it can trigger your racial identity, it can challenge your racial identity, your gender identity, and your sexuality. And there's different patterns for women, and even across racial groups, each racial group has different stereotypes that they're, I would say, negative stereotypes that are associated with their group. And that's going to influence the type of racial stereotypes that people associate with them. Thank you for sharing that. So I want to ask, because of the findings that you just elaborated upon, the question naturally becomes, what are some self-protective mechanisms, right? It seems to be that people, you know, we can deal with it better if it's our group member, right? Because we already invalidate them. They don't have the authenticity. They don't have the legitimacy. They don't have the claims on our culture that affect us as much, right? Versus an in-group person. So what would be some of the self-protective strategies or tips that you give people to mitigate these negative outcomes when it comes to mental, psychosocial health outcomes, when it may be an in-group person who's levying this accusation against you? So that's a great point for intervention. And I think the best way to intervene is to try to enhance coping responses and coping mechanisms. Because let's be real. So I get the question often because the majority of these acting while accusations occur within school contexts. It's just across the board. That's where you're going to see the majority of these acting white invalid or these invalidations occur. So schools, you know, it's to their best interest to decide what can we do to help change the climate of the school to help eliminate these accusations can be quite traumatic. The source of racial trauma that youth of color are disproportionately affected by. And that's an uphill battle because really the core of this trauma is being based off racial stereotypes. And as much as the school tries, because our stereotypes are informed by national media and now even international media that's out of a school's control, their students are still going to be socialized to hold these stereotypes of certain groups. And for marginalized groups, it's going to be more negative stereotypes. But what we can try to enhance and act on is the way that individuals cope with these dynamics when they happen and the way that they can call out a perpetrator. And I think one good training that can be helpful is to train youth and empower them to when they do experience these accusations, because the vast majority of youth of color are going to encounter this at some point in their lifespan. But when they do encounter it, rather than internalizing it as if the problems within them, is to question their perpetrator and ask them why. So if you're accusing another Black student or a Latinx student of acting white because they are on the honor roll, then that's a perfect situation to throw it right back in the perpetrator's face and ask, okay, why are you accusing me of that? Do you think that only white people belong on the honor roll? And if you do feel that, why do you feel that way? 
So to really start to dissect that, and I think if those conversations can happen more often, then it's going to start to deter perpetrators in the first place from accusing this, because now they're going to learn something from that accusation that they just accused them of the peer of. This is a good point that you made. Do you know of research that have asked the people who have levied the term, right, <laughs> against others within their groups? Because, you know, we get a lot of the research over the people who are like, this was called to me and I've experienced this. I, I don't know of any, but so I'm, I'm curious if you know of, of any of the research in this stream where people say, yes, I called this person this and it was because of X, Y, Z, right? Yeah. So nah, thanks for that perfect live. So outside of my own research lab, <laughs> I haven't seen anyone else in the country kind of conduct that work to really look at what's the psychology of the perpetrator? What motivates them to perpetrate in the first place? Are they doing it out of a way of kind of being harmed themselves in the past? Or is it just purely malicious to try to tear other people down? And based on the, so we have at this point, two years of longitudinal data looking at the perpetrators of these acting white accusations. These are all black undergraduate students at a predominantly white university. So one of my honors thesis students, undergraduate students did their thesis on the exact topic. So our goal is to kind of clean up the results to hopefully get it public soon. But what we're finding is based on the perpetrators themselves, it's not necessarily how frequently they were victimized themselves of acting white in the past, but more so of how disturbing and distressful those accusations were that compels them then to perpetrate more frequently in the future. And that brings up a really interesting dynamic where they already know the stress and trauma that it caused them. And that makes them, the more vulnerable they were to that stress and trauma, they're more likely to perpetrate it in the future. And that shows us that now at the college level, when they are using this acting white accusation, they're using it very strategically to try to, and when we ask them why they do it, sometimes they say it's to tear down, not a lot, but yes, it's basically to bring some, sometimes bring their peers down a peg. So if they feel that their peers may be getting too condescending or elitist or uppity or just losing touch with the community altogether, they almost, they know that they can weaponize this accusation in a way and they know the distress that it caused them to use it strategically to try to pull their peers in line. So once again, now this falls within Black respectability politics to pull them in line and behave the way that they feel is most fitting for, that, for their community. So can we talk about that a little bit more, right? Not the respectability politics part of it, because I've written about how detrimental they are, but the idea of the condescension, right? If this this idea of people really trying to make sure people don't forget who they are, right? So I want to kind of tease these apart a bit. How can we do it in a way? Because I think that's culturally, it's an important thing within a group to do, right? To make sure that people within your group display self-protective mechanisms for the group writ large, right? And so I do know, I like I, there's plenty of cases, right, that I know of within group members who they do have, you know, negative anti-Black sentiments, right, for a group, right? They do display condescension when they, when they talk to us, right, within a group. How do we tease apart those things? Because I don't see that as a culture invalidation, right, per se, like, or, or like, what's the language we should use when we have those conversations with people? I mean, I, I don't levy that term to anyone, but I definitely have conversations with people if I see them engaging in really anti-Black sentiment and, you know, anti-Black behaviors when they're within group. 
I would still classify it as a cultural validation that is used towards that people because let, let's be real. I mean, these cultural validations, they stay, they hurt. So even for someone who does internalize, let's say, a sense of anti-Blackness and internalized racism. So I'll use an example. This might get political. It's definitely going to get political, but Clarence Thomas, all right? This is an individual who a lot of the Black community would say is working against his own self-interest because a lot of his beliefs can be perceived as very anti-Black. But this is still, at the end of the day, a man in America who identifies as a Black man. So none of us have the right to really get inside of his head to know how he identifies. But from what we do know, he does identify as a Black man. But yet his political beliefs, both social, social and economics, seem to be very just anti-Black <laughs> in nature. So based on that behavior and the way that the community has now perceived Clarence Thomas, I mean, that still gives us, I guess I would say, an insult that we know can get under the skin in a way to try to change their worldview and the belief and almost to remind an individual that, okay, you may see yourself as superior to other members of your group because if it's a marginalized group, you may see yourself as superior to them because your attributes and behaviors and even where you live and the way you talk, all these things are more closer to whiteness. But at the end of the day, that culture validation now accusing that person of acting white, it's a way of kind of cutting them in a way that the majority of society can't cut that individual to try to I give them a reality check that no matter how hard you try to behave in a matter, if it's intentionally to be white, you will never fully be white enough to be included in white society. So I would say that's the way that I would say that would probably, once you get into late adolescence and adulthood, that's the way that this insult is used very strategically to try to kind of cut deep in a way. But some of our perpetrators saying they're doing it for the better good of the community overall to try to, once again, pull those individuals back into the community, pull them back in line and remind them that they're still Black at the end of the day. You know, that was one of the people I was thinking about as I was asking the question, but I was more so saying not levying the term against them, right? Like not using that language of, of acting white. But if I were to have a conversation with them or people like him, right? Like what's the type of language besides acting white, like levying acting white, because I wouldn't do that. But just having a conversation with them, I just didn't know if you had some advice for people. Yeah, I mean, in that case, in that situation with Clarence Thomas, it would probably be a lot more <laughs> a polarizing term. Such, I mean, you'd probably be accused of Uncle Tom or a sellout, you know, which is, once again, it's a variant of this. It's probably the most extreme variant, if it was on the continuum, the most extreme variant of this acting white accusation. But those labels would probably be levied in that situation. Gotcha. Okay. I was also thinking about those labels as well. I was trying to move away from the labels altogether <laughs> and just have the conversation. But Yeah, and these are ugly labels. Like, by no means are these, you know, nice. These are very ugly labels, but these labels are used strategically when they are levied. As we wrap up, I do want to talk about, I mean, we talked a little bit throughout the conversation about adulthood, like things, you know, that happen in people's life as an adult, but most of the research is focused on adolescence or late adolescence. But I want you know, to give you opportunity to talk about when we are in the workplace, professional settings, you know, what are the things that we see and how are those things um, impacting people of color in their workspaces when they become professionals? Yeah. So thinking about the developmental patterns of this acting white accusation, we see that for most, and this is most of this data is going to be on black youth, because that's just the population that we have the most data on. We're just now developing, getting more data on other racial and ethnic groups. So speaking specifically to black individuals, these cultural validations and the acting white accusations specifically, they tend to emerge around elementary school for most individuals. They really pick up pace at middle school and they tend to hit a peak during high school. 
So if we think about that period during middle school and high school, that's when identity development and identity formation comes into play. So this is a period where individuals are trying to figure out, okay, what does it mean to be Black? What does it mean to be Black in America? And how should I carry myself and move about in the world? So as individuals are making sense of their own identity, they're doing this at the same time as their peers. And for oftentimes for, let's say, early and middle adolescence, it's much easier to define what being Black is not than it is to define what being Black is. If you were to ask, a, let's say, a 12-year-old of, you know, name some attributes that are not very Black, they can easily just rattle that off. But if you flip that same as that question of, okay, then tell me, what does it mean being Black? Like, what are some attributes that are Black? They're going to pause because the first thing that pops in mind is going to be those negative stereotypes that society has created that image, but they don't want to speak that into existence. So they're going to pause and have some difficulty, a little bit of a lot more struggle in trying to figure out, okay, what is being authentically Black? So as youth are kind of trying to make sense of this, one easy way for them to develop their own sense of identity is to make these downward comparisons where they can call out and accuse their peers of acting white or not being authentically Black as they're trying to figure out themselves what it means to be Black. So that's why we see this peak in accusations that really picks up in middle school, but then hits the peak during high school. Now, once you get to colleges, college is a unique setting because most schools have a strong weeding mechanism that takes place where they tend to attract students from, a, let's say, a particular profile in terms of whether they're extremely high achieving or not, or from a certain economic level or even just region or geographic region of the country. So we have this extreme weeding factor of college. And when you get to typically when you get to more selective colleges, you're going to get more students who themselves being accused of acting white now all feeding into very similar schools. So now that you have this conglomerate of students of color who've all been accused of acting white mostly in their past, now we do see that the frequency of these accusations does take a dip, but in terms of the mental health consequences, that stays exactly the same in college. So even though the accusation is being occurring less frequently, when it does occur, now it's more likely to be that very strategic accusation from a peer who also knows how traumatizing that term was. They're using it now strategically versus back in the day in middle school and high school, the term was thrown around so frequently that it was almost oftentimes thrown around in like a joking manner where it can be like, oh, you know, you're listening to the white radio stations, et cetera, like things like that. Or, but as you get older in age, the accusations start to get, they start to sting more. They get much more strategic and using a way to kind of cut deeper. So as individuals then leave college and get into their kind of occupations and workforce, we'd see a major drop-off in how frequently these accusations occur. Typically, at that point, they're more likely to occur from family members in that case. And once again, they're going to be occurring in that very spiteful way of, all right, let me tear you down a peg. Like, you might have this amazing career, this lavish new, you know, lifestyle, whatever, but let me remind you where you came from and <laughs> to remind you that no matter how close you get to being affluent and maybe surrounding yourself by white society, that you're never going to fully be welcomed and embraced by white society. So thank you so much, Dr. Durkee, for joining me in the guest chair today and talking about this acting white phenomena. Like I said before, people in our community heard about this. Even people outside the community heard about this. But there's just so much to unpack here, so much in terms of the nuance of the findings, the research findings that a lot of people just do not know about. And so you have truly enlightened us today. So much success to you on all of your projects in the future and with your career. And, and hopefully we'll hear some good news soon for you regarding tenure promotion and, and all of your research projects coming out. Thank you so much, Oscar. It's such a pleasure being here. Thank you for listening to Diversity Matters. 
If you enjoyed our show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our show, post, talk about, and reshare our show with all of your friends and family. And leave us a favorable review and rating so that we'll make it easier for others to find us wherever they listen to podcasts. We cannot do this important work or keep it going without you. So we really appreciate your support. We especially like to thank our episode sponsor, the Philadelphia Ballet. Please consider purchasing a subscription or tickets to their amazing ballets and become a donor to support their mission to bring the art of ballet to the broadest audience possible. For more information, please visit their website at www.philadelphiaballet.org. If you or your company would like to sponsor a Diversity Matters episode, please visit the podcast section of our website at www.whconsultingfirm.com for more information. Diversity Matters is produced by WH Consulting, a firm that provides a wide range of management consulting and professional services to individuals and organizations. Original music produced by Sincere Morton Murray. Until next time, peace and love.